Working Cows Podcast, episode 163. Welcome to the podcast that gives producers a platform to discuss and share paradigm-challenging practices. Practices that have increased the effectiveness of their operation and the joy that their families have received from this lifestyle. Howdy, everybody. It's Clay Connery, host of the Working Cows podcast, powered by the Global Ag Network. Here again with another episode for you guys. Uh, really appreciate your patience in, in me getting these episodes out uh, through the fall work season and different things like that. But uh, really um, excited to share with you again today another another one of the episodes, another one of the webinars that I was privileged to be a part of for the Colorado section for the Society of Range Management. Uh, check out the show notes page. There will be links to all the webinars there uh, at the show notes page for today, workingcows.net slash 163, and re- releasing a couple episodes here in quick succession for the purpose of uh, setting up my week, my uh, episode next week with uh, Tip Hudson and Kathy Voth. Uh, Tip Hudson, of course, host of the uh, uh, <laughs> Tip Hudson, of course, host of the Art of Range podcast. Kathy Voth is uh, the the mind and the heart and the soul behind um, the OnPasture.com website. So I will be talking with them, kind of a follow up discussion to today's episode uh, next week on the Working Cows podcast. So I wanted to get that out there. So. Here is the online Building Online Communities webinar. Uh, I'm going to start out with Tip Hudson, and then I will share my thoughts, and then Kathy Voth will share her thoughts, and we'll wrap it up at the end. And uh, I'll, I'll have some words to share after that. Good morning, and thanks to everyone for joining us today for the SRM webinar series. Now we are extremely pleased to present our first speaker today, We were lucky enough to get Tip Hudson with us today. Tip is an associate professor at Washington State University Extension in rangeland and livestock management. He's also the creator and host of the Art of Range podcast. Tip has lived in Ellensburg, Washington since leaving the University of Idaho in 2001. His work with Washington State University has focused on sustainable rangeland grazing, riparian grazing to support stream function and water quality, rangeland monitoring, and irrigated pasture management. In his free time, he enjoys exploring Washington's diverse landscapes with his wife and children and playing the electric bass guitar. Tip, we'll hand it off to you. Thank you. I am glad to be here. I'm gonna see if I can figure out how to make my PowerPoint share the right screen. We'll go from there. Let's see, what are you seeing, Matt? Are you seeing my uh, I see, I see your, your first slide that talks about the Art of Range podcast. Okay. Well, good. Greetings. Uh, I came through Greeley actually back in late June uh, en route back to Washington State from visiting my family in Arkansas. I've got an aunt and uncle there who have uh, been in Greeley for some time. I wished I could have stayed a little longer and wished I could have come back. I got into range management because I was interested in managing whole ecosystems and had done some interning with wildlife biologists in Arkansas, where I grew up on a small ranch uh, that was more woodland than pasture. Uh, But I discovered at the University of Idaho that rangeland ecology, which I had not heard of before, 
integrated many related disciplines in support of what I consider to be truly sustainable human flourishing. And I still feel like rangelands-based livestock production is really the only method of food and fiber production that relies on natural plant communities and does not involve obliterating what was there before. Uh, there's a, a natural synergy between ecology and economy in range livestock production that's unique. Uh, my job as a range extension faculty in Washington is to help people whose livelihoods depend on managing land, uh, managing land well, do a good job at it. And the older I get, the more I'm motivated by caring for people, both because people matter and also because the only way that we'll take care of the earth is through influencing people. Uh, there was a group of us at WSU a few years ago that had gotten a grant to produce three short film documentaries of ranches in Washington, Oregon, and Idaho that were managing rangelands for resilience to climate uncertainty. And in my job in this, in this team was to interview the ranchers uh, while they're on camera. And I found that I really enjoyed interacting this in, in this way. And I also felt like the exploration of a topic together was more enlightening than me trying to analyze a topic on my own. Uh, sometimes the rabbit trails are the point. And through a range of influences, I began also thinking that a podcast that broadcasts recorded conversations exploring a topic might be more effective in addressing the risks in ranching and range management than traditional extension information delivery. Because solutions to complex problems require understanding a local biological, social, and economic context, and those solutions are arrived at through mental labor. Uh, so I got a grant from the Western Center for Risk Management Education to start the podcast two years ago and uh, running it now under a second grant from RME. Uh, the Society for Range Management and the Rangelands Partnership have been active participants uh, in, that, in that project since the beginning. Uh, but I want to acknowledge the funding source here. Well, ranchers consistently identify sociological and regulatory risks as the most significant, unpredictable, and uncontrollable risks to their businesses. Uh, Nathan Sayre, who is a geographer at University of California, Berkeley, that some of you may have heard of, said in a, a 2005 address, actually to this Rangelands Partnership, that the threats to ranching today are not fundamentally ecological ones. The forces arrayed against it are economic and social in nature. Uh, that's what keeps people up at night. Those risks cannot be adequately addressed through a financial planning workshop, with no offense to financial planners. The risks are, are bigger than that and more amorphous. The edges of these kinds of problems are not sharp. Uh, for some people, these risks, which is pretty sterile language, pile up and combine into a nonspecific general sense of anxiety. Uh, and like in state and transition models for ecological systems, it is easier to prevent crossing that threshold than it is to recover from it. In scientists speak, we might say that social and regulatory risks must be addressed by continual adaptive management toward ecological and economic resilience. 
that's a mouthful. But those words fail to communicate the amount of work that it takes to translate that concept into daily decisions. Uh, and even more basic than that, directing your thoughts and moment-by-moment actions towards something creative and constructive. So we might say that successful adaptation, which is the only way to survive in the world of rangeland ranching, requires building mental and social skills that increase one's ability to respond creatively and constructively uh, to these social and ecological challenges. But that mental resiliency is being challenged. Uh, Thomas Friedman, who's a well-known New York Times journalist, called our time the age of interruption. That was in 2006. And a former Microsoft executive called the dominant thinking pattern today across society as continuous partial attention. If anybody's checking email on your computer or phone right now, you know what I'm talking about. (laughs) Brain scientists have shown that the human brain is highly plastic, Uh, A neuroscientist at George Mason University says that the brain has the ability to reprogram itself on the fly, altering the way it functions. This phenomenon is described by Hebb's rule, cells that fire together, wire together. We can gain and lose specific kinds of mental abilities depending on what we do with our brains. Unfortunately, scattered thinking and an inability to concentrate are just the tip of the iceberg. Sherry Turkle is a social scientist who's been at MIT for 40 years studying the effects of computers on people. She, among many others, argues that a more serious long-term result of saturation in modern media and of having hyper-connected computer devices that are always on and always on you is a precipitous loss of empathy for fellow humans. Hmm. On the one hand, there's nothing new under the sun. A lack of empathy is not new. But I would also argue, as we sit here today on the eve of one of the most polarizing elections in the history of our nation, that the volume of the rancor, the antipathy, the opposite of empathy, in what used to be called civil society is deafening in a way that feels a bit dangerous. And that kind of social antipathy seems to be agnostic to political party, age, gender, ethnicity, occupation, and philosophy can also drive antipathy. I think scientists are prone to shun philosophy, uh, thinking that it's unscientific, but, but our philosophy and our worldview affects how we act. And I would say that underneath this, uh, desensitization that comes from media saturation. We're also swimming in the philosophy of utilitarianism. Utilitarianism says that people are just matter in motion and have no intrinsic value. It says that all matter is only valuable as a means to self-determined ends. Most of us are not all the way there, but you can feel it and see it in the news. Uh, I'm going to risk stepping on some toes and expose myself here. I want to give you one really near example of where pure philosophical pragmatism and utilitarianism end up. In 2008, a longtime Utah State University range professor, Tad Box, published an article in the SRM's journal Rangelands titled, Caring Capacity, Trade-Offs, and a Land Ethic. 
In that article, he praises a 1984 Japanese film called The Ballad of Narayama. That, uh, it's a film that took awards at the Cannes Film Festival. The film portrays an indigenous tribe in Japan that takes its elderly at the age of 70 up on top of a mountain to leave them there to die of exposure so that they're not a burden to the young. It also portrays stuffing infants in the snow to kill them if the village thinks it has too many people. Dr. Box, who is a congenial, warm fellow, praises the film and those practices and says that it represents the unavoidable conclusion of applying an ecological ethic, a new way of defining right and wrong promoted by Aldo Leopold, who is everybody's hero in the conservation world. Dr. Box openly advocated gerontocide and infanticide in the interest of avoiding exceeding our carrying capacity. Do scientific facts drive us there? Not quite. This is philosophy that's working. Uh, two years ago, David Goodall, a fellow professor of boxes at Utah State University, moved to Switzerland to avail himself of doctor-assisted suicide. And an article about Goodall's passing at the age of 104, Ted Box recalls from his time with him at Utah State, uh, he liked to be alone. He did not like to enter into conversations with others. He would often go over to the mess hall in the student union and sit and eat by himself. Sometimes he would ask people to leave. Sometimes it's important to initiate conversation with people. I may get run out of town on a rail for arguing that human lives have intrinsic and not just utilitarian value, mm -hmm. uh, but that is a hill I'm willing to die on. If anybody who's listening is in that place, considering ending life before its natural conclusion out of either duty or despair, I'd like you to call me when we're done here. I'm as serious as I can be. My cell phone number is on the screen. Uh, better yet, call someone that you know who can violate social distancing and come talk to you. And in extension, we like to talk about lifelong learning. We assume that we never fully arrive, that there's always something more to learn. In fact, after doing marriage and rangeland ecology for over 20 <laughs> years now, I have a lot fewer pat answers than I did 20 years ago. <laughs> and I think this is the beginning of wisdom and not the end of it. Mm. Uh, Nicholas Carr in his book, The Glass Cage, describes well what happens when we give up the ability to think, to pursue wisdom and not just collect scientific facts. Uh, he says, if we're not careful, the automation of mental labor by changing the nature and focus of intellectual endeavor may end up eroding one of the foundations of culture itself, our desire to understand the world. And I would add each other. Predictive algorithms may be supernaturally skilled at discovering correlations, but they're indifferent to the underlying causes of traits and phenomena. Yet it's the deciphering of causation, the meticulous untangling of how and why things work the way they do, that extends the reach of human understanding and ultimately gives meaning to our search for knowledge. If we come to see automated calculations of probability as sufficient for our professional and social purposes, we risk losing or at least weakening 
our desire and motivation to seek explanations, to venture down the circuitous paths that lead toward wisdom and wonder. The Art of Range podcast exists to venture down those circuitous paths. Conversation is important because it is powerful. Conversation is the most human thing we do as humans. Conversation also strengthens the brain because it demands single tasking, doing one thing with focus for an extended period of time with your brain fully engaged on that one thing. And this is becoming frighteningly rare. Hmm. Uh, But conversation also promotes what psychologists call the generation effect. This is where your brain takes in information, digests it, and makes conclusions from it, puts the pieces back together into something that's meaningful. Uh, Fred Provenza, a well-known researcher of animal behavior and herbivore interactions with their environments, has said that the process of creating in science and practice is enabled through dialogue, the free flow of ideas among peoples of diverse backgrounds. Don Nelson, who is WSU's extension beef specialist for many years, loved to say that we don't know what we don't know. We uncover some of these unknown unknowns through conversation. Uh, there's an interview with Dr. Provenza on the podcast at artofrange.com. Uh, his is one of my favorites. And contrary to the uh, rationalizing of Rene Descartes, humans are not merely thinking things. We are thinkers, but our rational analysis does not drive every thought and move. Our ability to think abstractly separates us from the rest of the animal kingdom, certainly, but our actions are driven by what we love, by our vision of the good life. We are always moving, living toward what we love, and it's important to give some thought to how we shape what we love. There is a a musician in Athens from a really long time ago uh, who famously said, let me write the songs of a nation and I don't care who writes its laws. This may have gotten a little heavy for some of you. From the talk title, you probably didn't know what to expect. I just want to point out here that people are persuaded to action by an appeal to shared values not just a transfer of scientific facts. Uh, So I I do have some really simple take-home messages that represent a convergence of brain science and philosophy and plain common sense. Leave your phone alone. Attend to the real live person in front of you or on the line. And it's not as easy as it sounds. Uh, My wife and I homeschool our children, and I'll still frequently get to the end of a day and realize that I didn't make eye contact with a particular child or didn't have any meaningful interaction with him or her. Uh, And some days I'm able to correct that. Then in in, or woodworking or reading, Uh, you could even read out loud, read a book on range poetry, go for a walk. Uh, Go for a ride somewhere that you've never been just because it's there. Mm. Your brain will thank you and your children will thank you and your grandchildren will thank you. And that's worth quite a bit. In fact, it might be everything. 
and turn on the Art of Range podcast the next time you're driving, uh, along with the Working Cows podcast. Thank you. Tip, thank you so much uh, for that presentation. I wanted to ask you, Tip, um, through your podcast and your extension work, uh, I know that you've certainly impacted people's operations, uh, maybe their lives. Can you talk a little bit about some impact you've seen, feedback you've gotten, may have been especially rewarding for the work you're doing? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I, I had a, a bunch of slides on a, uh, a different presentation on the podcast I decided not to use, but uh, I ran a survey to find out with open-ended questions on what people were doing as a result of listening to the survey, partly because I've got a report back to the funders on whether this is making any difference for anybody. And also because, you know, one of my hopes was that uh, listening to all of this, you know, broad range of content, pun intended, ought to result in people making, uh, you know, local site-specific uh, conclusions about what they should do with it, which means you can't provide a drop-down list of five answers on what you did as a result of listening to the podcast and expect that to fit everyone. So we just left it open-ended and let people fill in the blanks. Uh, and, and that resulted in a, a pretty long list of really, really diverse answers. You know, people um, concluding that they need to go in and sit down at the Forest Service office and talk to the range con or you know, put together uh, that photo monitoring plan that they've been thinking about for 15 years and haven't actually taken a picture yet. Uh, a variety of things like that. Uh, interestingly, I, I got a, an email from a woman in Texas who said that her husband had been blinded by a horseback accident a number of years ago and had kind of been struggling to figure out what he should do with the rest of his life. And uh, listening to the podcast, one, got him back in touch with the things that he loves and also made him realize that uh, that he could have an influence even if he couldn't get out and do things anymore. And, um, yeah, that's kind of a scattered collection of, of some of the results. It's actually powerful. I appreciate that very much, Tip, to know that you're making a difference. Uh, talk a little bit about our format today. What I'm going to go ahead and do is we're going to go ahead and, and, and bring Clay on and then Kathy, and then I want to bring all three of you together on a panel at the end so that we can have a little dialogue between the three of you and answer any questions from the group. To Clay Connery. So Clay is a Western South Dakota native growing up on a cow-calf operation near Belfouche, South Dakota. After attending the High Plains Ranch practicum led by Dallas Mount, Clay was inspired to create the WorkingCows.net podcast. Uh, Clay and his family have recently relocated to West Central South Dakota, where Clay has taken over pastoring the Prairie Home Church. It's an independent church that has been meeting on the prairie near Maureen, South Dakota for 110 years. Quite impressive. Um, as part of this relocation, Clay and his wife have purchased a ranch and look forward to implementing some of the paradigm-challenging practices that they have learned so much about over the last three years. Uh, Clay, with that, I'm going to kick it over to you. Well, thanks, Matt. Really appreciate the opportunity today. Uh, really appreciate all the work that's gone into this event on the on the backside that most people don't see, and especially to Noah uh, for putting up to my putting up with my uh, 
last minute changes and and getting them getting them implemented. So really appreciate that. Uh, should I share my screen and start my slideshow or oh there we go there it is. So you know one of the things that I've learned in 150 episodes of the Working Cows podcast is that you just have to ask. <laughs> Uh, just ask, you know, people are willing, especially in this section of, um, agriculture, people are willing to share their story. They're willing to share their successes and their failures. They're willing to share, uh, anything that they think can help you. And this podcast is a testament to that. You know, everybody from, uh, Alan Savory to Joel Salatin to Alan Williams and, um, people that, you know, you wouldn't know their name, but have been making impressive changes on their landscape as well. Over and over again, uh, a cold email or text message or phone call will net me a response in as little as 48 hours. And we'll have an interview scheduled and an opportunity to, uh, to talk to those individuals. So it's, it's something that I think you just have to ask and you, you can trust the people in this industry uh, to be willing to, to do what they can to help you. Uh, one of the, one of the things that I've really, uh, enjoyed about this process is, is the process of learning. And, and what have I learned? I, I started out, uh, never, I've never, never moved, uh, a cow with a hot, hot wire. Uh, my, my dad, we grew up calving in April. Um, but, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't May and June, I guess. And, and so, um, fairly, fairly traditional background. And so I guess in the process of this podcast, I've learned everything, everything that I know about regenerative agriculture. I've learned through, uh, the High Plains Ranch Practicum, which opened up the world of regenerative agriculture to me as far as the network is concerned and, and everything. Uh, so I've just been asking people, Will you sit down and talk with me for about an hour? And overwhelmingly, people have been willing to do that. And it's been uh, a great opportunity that I've really appreciated. And uh, this whole adventure has been uh, an adventure in proving the Dunning-Kruger effect, that the more you think you know, uh, or the, the less time you are in a space, the more you think you know about it. And the longer you spend in a space, the more you realize you don't know. And so every day is an opportunity to learn a little bit more. And so I opened up uh, this this to a survey in my private Facebook group. I asked them, uh, what was your favorite episode of the Working Cows podcast? And I was a little nervous for the first hour or so when it looked like I had peaked at episode two, uh, that, that that was the best that I was going to be. Uh, you will take comfort that this particular survey uh, was finished out by having episode 100 with Burke Tigert in the lead as the favorite episode of the people that at that time were in the group. And, uh, it's been a great, been a great opportunity. I really, really appreciate all the people that have been willing to sit down with me, but I want to talk to you a little bit about some lessons four specific lessons that I've learned as a result of the Working Cows podcast and the opportunity I've had to talk to uh, many people uh, from a range of backgrounds, a range of continents even, <laughs> and a range of experiences. So the first lesson that I have learned is that cows have a brain, and maybe uh, from an anatomical perspective, that should not have been a surprise, that shouldn't have been a lesson, but I think more along the lines of 
on the range, uh, in the pen, on forage, cows have a brain. And if we're willing to allow them to use those instincts and that brain and allow them to function on the land and allow them to uh, express their, as as others have said, as uh, Fred Brevenza has said, express that nutritional wisdom, uh, we can see them go to work for us. And that's really uh, the ethos of the Working Cows podcast is that we're putting cows to work for us rather than doing the work for the cows, that we're finding those cows that will perform, uh, that will go to work for us, that will do uh, for us the things that we need them to do rather than us putting uh, crutches under them and giving giving them the tools that they need to survive. So cows have a brain. We want to keep their head down. We want to keep their head down on forage. We want to keep their head down uh, on the land. We want to keep... Uh, keep them calm, give them the opportunity to, uh, to seek out that best bite that they can find and then move them on and just continually keeping good forage in front of them, continually giving them the opportunity to, to seek out that best bite and, and trusting them to, to find it if we will continually keep fresh pasture in front of them. One of the things that I've come, one of the conclusions I've come to as a result of this podcast is, uh, and, and continuing in my own experience, my own personal experience, is that all that stands between you and more grazing days per year is a plan. If you're willing to make a plan, if you're willing to put that plan down on paper, uh, maybe not as uh, etched in stone, but as a guideline and as a starting point and as a place from which to make changes to the plan as years change and as years uh, express themselves differently, uh, that you will begin to experience greater and greater opportunity to graze more days per year. And there's probably an upper limit for that in everybody's, uh, everybody's context. But uh, if we're willing to go through the exercise of making the plan, that's at least half the benefit, if not more of it. So we want to allow the cows to show us that they have a, bra- a brain. And, and in the context of stockmanship, in the context of, of being in the pen with the cattle, uh, we want to give them time to think. We want to we give them time to look at what we're asking them to do and make a decision and go in that direction uh, so, that we're not, uh, so that we're not stressing them out, so that we're not causing shrink, so that we're not causing them to uh, struggle with the, the process and, and to, you know, ultimately they're going backwards. If their head isn't down, if their head is up, if they're in flight mode, uh, if they're in fight mode, uh, they, they're going backwards for us and we want to we want to do what we can to keep them moving in the right direction lesson number two is that sunshine is free and plentiful again uh this is probably one of those uh duh yeah of course it is uh but are we using the sunshine that we have today are we using the sunshine that we have uh today coming down are we capturing all of that solar energy that we can uh as we move through uh 
out the year? Are we continuing to capture as much solar energy as we can? Are we leaving that solar panel there of the grasses and forbs and legumes and all the different things uh, that are on our ranges? Are we leaving that solar panel intact so that it can capture the most amount of sunshine that it can? And I put up here my episode with Steve Kenyon on managing waste in quotes. That's kind of like weeds are in quotes. We have waste in quotes here uh, because what is waste in bale grazing. It's litter, it's ground cover, it's uh, in, a, in a year or two, it's organic matter, it is water holding capacity. Steve Kenyon has said more than once, I've heard him say it more than once, the number one uh, resource that we should be managing on our range, on our land, is water. And we've all heard uh, for every 1% increase in organic matter is 26,000 gallons of water holding capacity. I have a friend uh, who's been a guest on the podcast who likes to say it this way, uh, for every 1% Uh, increase in organic matter, that's another inch of water holding capacity that we can uh, accomplish. So uh, really kind of shows us what's what's possible, what's what we're capable of accomplishing. And I think that we need to continue to uh, manage for water holding capacity. We need to continue to manage that solar panel to protect the soil, to protect the underground livestock, or or Steve Kenyon says, the underground employees that are working for us and give them shelter and give them food so that they can continue to work for us. And so that's uh, one of the things that I've learned. Uh, Sunshine is free and plentiful, and we want to uh, do what we can to capture that sunshine uh, as much as possible and work on work on using the new solar energy that's coming every day and capturing as much of that as we can rather than drawing on the fossil fuels and having a solar-powered ranch, as Kit Farrow says, having a solar-powered ranch rather than a diesel-powered ranch. Lesson number three is that economic analysis is laborious. And that's, you know, it's, it's not hard but it's something that we spend more time thinking about or dreading doing than we actually would would take to do it. And I have up here way back on episode six of the Working Cows podcast with Aaron Berger, who is also an instructor at the High Plains Ranch Practicum and a great extension uh, leader in Nebraska and has been producing uh, the the Beef Watch podcast for a long time and, and really producing some great resources there. Uh, but he, we, I had him on in episode six to talk about cow depreciation. And he made the statement there that cow depreciation is the second or third largest expense on a ranch operation. Cow depreciation is the second or third largest expense on a cow uh, operation. Yet, how many people know that? How many people have looked at even even developed an inventory value of their cows to realize that after about five or six years old, that inventory value really drops off? And, and Wally Olson, another one who is really good about communicating this, and I think uh, one of the great services that Wally Olson has done for the uh, ranching community is to take those principles of Bud Williams and his marketing principles and then also uh, flesh them out for the cow-calf guy and looking at the cow depreciation. We tend to spend the most time doing the things that we enjoy. We tend to be good at the ten- the things that we spend the most time doing. We enjoy stockmanship. We enjoy making infrastructure changes and decisions but we need to be okay with not being very good at this the first time we do it, 
We need to be okay with taking some continuing education courses to take a course to find uh, resources to help us uh, continue to improve our skills in the, the area of economics, economic analysis and, and to continue to uh, make it something that goes from beating our head against the wall to uh, this young lady sitting under a tree enjoying her economic an- analysis as I, as I see it. And maybe... It's just not something you're wired to do. Maybe it's just not something you're wired to be good at. But there are people, there are ways that you could improve your quality of life, that you could improve everybody's quality of life if you're just willing to outsource that. And then take the, because the the value of economic analysis is not in the process, kind of adverse to what the planning is. If you're range planning or if you're grazing planning, half the value of that or more is the the act of just doing the planning. Uh, Economic analysis the value is what you get back, the data you get back, and taking that and making a decision about how you're going to market and how you're going to uh, make uh, a plan and how you're going to implement that plan and how you're going to uh, use the numbers that you get back in your favor so that you're not uh, being uh, that, that that second or third largest expense on a ranching operation isn't sneaking up on you and all of a sudden you've got all these old depreciated cows and your inventory value has gone backwards. So uh, some really some really important things there. If it's just something that we hate, then we should find somebody that can lighten the load for us. Uh, honestly, I think that when we start to think about cow depreciation, uh, there might be that transition, that paradigm challenge where prices and weather aren't what keep us up at night, but change in inventory value and managing depreciation keeps us up at night where we're, we're thinking about how do I make sure that I market these cows at peak value? How do I develop heifers into the herd uh, in a way that is, that is efficient and effective and and profitable so that when they are older cows or when they are five, six-year-old cows, I can market them and just continue to have that revolving door and continue to build a business on that. And finally, lesson number four is that we need to make our vision clear. Kelly Sidoric on episode 83 of the Working Cows podcast, we talked about uh, developing a shared vision and one of the reasons I think that episode two has uh, been so popular for uh, the life of the Working Cows podcast is because it was examining the four uh, pillars of a ranching operation. And where did we start? I said, what's the, what's the biggest barrier to success? We outlined the four pillars. I said, what's the biggest barrier to success in the ranching operation? And uh, Dallas Mount's words exactly are, without a doubt, it's the people. Without a doubt, the biggest barrier to uh, success in our ranching operation is the people. Well, how does how does developing a shared vision, and uh, uh, de- how does developing a shared vision uh, or making our vision clear affect our people? Well, it helps everybody know where we're headed. It helps everybody know what we're doing, where we're going, and so we want to make sure that we are managing people well. And one of the big steps. One of the first things that we can do to manage people well is to develop a shared vision. I like to draw on the wisdom of Scripture uh, whenever I can, and I see here in Habakkuk 2.2, it says, Then the Lord answered me and said, Write the vision and make it plain on tablets that he, who, that he may run who 
reads it. So make it clear enough that whoever, somebody running by can see it. And so I, I think, uh, obviously, this is in the context of uh, Habakkuk writing down the vision that God had given him of uh, Babylon coming under God's judgment and taking comfort in the fact that Babylon wasn't going to be uh, wasn't going to be held up as a right example of righteousness. But we can take a, a lesson there too in developing a shared vision, developing uh, a vision that everybody is that everybody understands, that everybody uh, can buy into and agree with and and join in moving towards that vision of success that everybody is bought in. And the second one, uh, where there is no vision, the people perish, but he that keeps the law is happy. Proverbs 29, 18, where there is no vision, the people perish. Another, another translation says, where there is no vision, the people cast off restraint. And I think that clear vision makes sure that the right people are on the bus, in the right seats. They are, the right people are on the bus and they're in the right place. They're doing the job that they are suited to do. Maybe you have a numbers guy who's suited to do the numbers and maybe he shouldn't be the guy that is sit, that is uh, doing all of the actual implementation of the infrastructure and water changes, but maybe you have somebody who's suited to sit down and put those numbers together and find uh, the dead wood, so to speak, and to do that. And we want to get them in the right blood, right seat on the bus. We want to give them uh, the jobs that they are uh, effective at completing. It can also, a, a clear vision can also nip conflict in the bud. Uh, it can be one of those tools that we use to go back and, and we, we scrutinize ideas, not people, and we say, is, is this conflict centering around somebody in the business fighting against the shared vision that we all sat down together and agreed to? And it can be one of those things that we go back to the drawing board, we go back to the whiteboard, or given the fact that we're in a uh, ranch for, ranching for profit, ranch management consultants, holistic management circle here, we go back to the flip chart, and we all look at the flip chart and we say, is this what we all agreed to? Is this uh, conflict that we're involved in right now uh, a because or a product of uh, not not operating under this shared vision agreement that we have all made. So those are some of the lessons that I have learned in the process of producing 150 plus episodes. Uh, one of the things that I, I do think is very, very true, and I learn it more and more every day, is what do I have left to learn? Everything. The more I, the more I learn about this idea of managing land, animals, people, and finances, the more I recognize that in every one of those areas, I still have everything to learn about doing it well, and that we are all uh, our own best resources. We can reach out to our network, reach out to our community, just ask, find those people who can be of assistance to us. So uh, we'll move on to questions if you have any. I'd also like to say uh, the Global Ag Network is a, a great tool, uh, another one of those great tools like the Art of Range podcast. Uh, the Global Ag Network is a herd of agriculturally focused podcasts, and you can find that at globalagnetwork.com. The Ag State of Mind uh, is a mental health podcast run by a rancher and pharmacist from Missouri, and he's doing everything he can to 
normalize the conversation around mental health and help people have that conversation uh, regularly with their fellow neighbors. Thank you for your time. Oh, Thanks, you Clay. Um, kind of works into my first question, Clay. Um, you know, the topic of our uh, the day today was online communities and resources. And and we realize that your podcast is more than a one-way communication. Uh, in fact, your listeners become a community, right? Uh, together. Talk about the benefits that members that the people that members of that community get by 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 this interaction through your podcast and through that community that's formed. Yeah, it's one of the one of the great joys of the podcast is just seeing the diversity of people and then seeing them connected on platforms like Twitter and Facebook and uh, seeing them interacting with each other uh, outside of a conversation that I started just asking each other questions and and finding the resources and the and the help that they need uh, to to do you know kind of where I started just ask and finding those finding those people who can who can help them through uh, whatever it is uh, that they're dealing with. Certainly, more value I think than anybody had uh, any idea when when the first podcast started. Uh, the the extra value that goes beyond your hour podcast that happens during the week. Yeah, no, it was, it wasn't, wasn't anywhere on my radar. Um, you know, early on, it was probably a continuing education thing for me. And it, and it continues to be that continues to be, uh, my, my most affordable <laughs> form of continuing education. Uh, but you know, the community that's developed around it and the, just the, the friendships that I have made, uh, through this podcast and, and the people's houses that I've been in as a result of it has, has been, uh, incredible. And then to see other people, uh, connected to the podcast have that same experience, uh, through the, through the friends and, and neighbors that they've met as a result of it is cool. One of the Thank one of the so cool much. stories about that I was at uh, the Ranch Management Consultants Ranching for Generation conference, and I ended up sitting at a table with I think three or four couples from Texas, and you know I, I told them I said you know the number one state that downloads my podcast every every month is Texas has been for a long time, and I don't have access to analytics at that level anymore, but it was at that time, and all all three of them looked at each other and like, really, I don't know anybody who thinks like me in Texas other than people that uh, ha- are connected to ranching for profit. So that was uh, that was an interesting interesting little piece of the pie there, I guess. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Clay. Um, again, we'll be bringing Clay and Tip back in a moment. Um, we're going to advance to our next speaker. Joining us today from her home in Tucson, Arizona. She is the founder and editor of On the Pasture website, On Pasture website, excuse me, which is a subscriber and sponsor-supported weekly online magazine for grazers. Each week, they publish five to seven articles, translating research and experience into practices farmers and ranchers can use right away. On Pasture is the most read publication of its kind. It, in just six short years, On Pasture has become the place for over 100,000 readers a month come to find information that will help them improve soil health, grow more forage, protect water quality, enhance wildlife habitat, and more. Its goal is to help you be more successful and profitable and to ensure that rural communities can grow and thrive. Wow. Thank you for joining us, Kathy. It's, the floor is yours. Hi. Can you see me? Can you hear me? I, I can, Kathy. 
Okay. Go right ahead. All right. Thank you. All right. So as you mentioned just a little bit ago when you were talking to Clay, um, what this what today is about is uh, online communities. And so I want to talk a little bit about um, how On Pasture and the people that I work with have worked to build a learning community for graziers. Um, let's see. All right. So basically, um, this is what our, our little tagline is. We're trying to translate research and experiences into practices that graziers can use right away. And as Matt mentioned, we publish seven articles each week and we have different categories. Uh, grazing management covers planning, um, moving animals, fencing, giving them water, those kinds of things. Um, Soil and forage health, that comes under our topic called pasture health. And we talk about weeds and soil and water quality and silvopasture and things like that. Um, livestock, of course, that's pretty obvious. Um, a lot of our readers are, um, they raise cattle, beef cattle in particular. So we kind of focus on that a little bit, but it includes behavior and different ways to manage animals and, and things like that. Um, then every other week we run either a Money Matters or a Consider This. Money Matters, um, that's pretty apparent what that's about. Um, marketing, um, financial analysis, planning, things like that, which happens to be the least popular of all of our uh, categories. Um, everybody wants to talk about the other things, but money is probably the most important way that they can keep doing what they do. So we conclude that, but it's the least popular. Um, and then we have consider this, which is kind of food for thought, help people think outside the box a little bit, stuff that they may not ordinarily think of. And then we, we give it a relationship back to, um, back to whatever kind of work they're doing as well. Um, then we have funnies, which is often the most popular thing on a Tuesday morning when we come out. And I always add a note for myself. Um, it could be something about what's going on locally, um, jobs, uh, things that people think about. Again, something to go just a little bit deeper. Uh, we have an article archive right now of about 3,000 articles. Um, we've go been going since March of 2013. So we've got a whole lot of stuff. Uh, it's available 24-7. And right now, it probably makes up about half of all the articles that are read per week. So that's kind of the surface. That's what everybody sees when they come to the website on pasture.com. But you guys wanted to know a little bit more. So here's, um, here's the, the rest. There's a whole lot more than what you're going to see just on the surface. So here's what I decided I wanted to do quite some time ago when I first started thinking about on pasture. I wanted to be a change agent that helps grazers adopt sustainable and profitable practices. And I started thinking about this because, um, well, as some, of, as some of you may know, uh, I developed a method for teaching cows to eat weeds. Uh, did that back in about 2004. It's based on behavioral principles and a lot of the work that I learned about when I was working with uh, Fred Provenza at Utah State University. And <clears throat> as part of that, I uh, spent about 10, 12 years on the uh, ag conference circuit talking about um, 
cows eating weeds, trying to teach people to do that. But of course, I'm there for the whole conference. And so I, I really started to notice something that happened in every single conference. And that was that a scientist would stand up and would talk about some really, really interesting stuff. Um, some And would stuff that would lead to practices that would be really beneficial for grazers. But they talked about it in kind of a typical scientific way um, with graphs and things that are hard to understand in their, in their own particular language. And I would just watch people's eyes glaze over. And then someone would stand up who had a product to sell or something that in many cases based on what I knew, was simply snake oil. But they were very charismatic. And they would get people to believe right away. And, and I would watch farmers who have very little time and very little money um, decide, oh, I'm going to do this. I'm going to buy this. And it really pissed me off. And so after about 10 years of watching this, um, I got together with a group of friends at one of these conferences. And I said, hey, you know, this is what's bothering me. And I'm really thinking about a grazing magazine that would solve that problem, that would help people see the difference between um, science and snake oil, would be able to um, basically translate all that science into something useful, kind of like I did with the cows eating weeds. I, you know, Fred had all of this amazing information, and then I could take it and you know, just take each little bit and turn it into steps that you can use to teach a cow to eat a weed in eight hours over seven days. So it becomes something like that. And, and I've been really concerned since I've been to all of these um, conferences that it's hard to be profitable and it's hard to figure out what practices are going to help you be, be the best land steward you can be while being profitable. So that's, that's kind of what I hoped to do with, with all of this. So if you're going to do that, you have to know what leads people to change. And um, when I first started teaching how to teach cows to eat weeds, I just thought, well, this is great because, you know, here I can give people 43% more forage. It takes eight hours over seven days um, and uh, you do it once and you're done and you can raise more cows and look how great this is. And so I thought, well, I just make a video. I write a few articles. I make a couple of talks. Ta-da. I can go on to the next thing. But that's not how it worked. And I couldn't figure out why when this was easy and beneficial, um, why people weren't doing it. So I actually <clears throat> did what I always do. Um, I go online and I try and figure out, is there a theory that will help me understand this? And I found something. Um, this is the diffusion innovation curve um, that was put together. Uh, it, you know, people started looking at this in like the 1930s. Um, and this is actually Everett Rogers' um, innovation diffusion curve right here. And it explains how people go from uh, learning about something to um, basically adopting it. And what he learned was that, well, it, it basically started with this, um, this study of farmers. This is about farmers. And they were trying to figure out back in the 1930s, 1940s, why farmers were so slow to adopt new hybrid corn. Um, it was basically taking them seven years 
to become aware and perhaps initiate a new practice. And then it was, it was taking about 12 years for everybody in that region to start this new hybrid corn. And they couldn't figure out because it was so beneficial for them. They had grown 20% more corn per acre and they would make more money and it was easier to grow and all those kinds of things. So they couldn't figure out why is this not happening? So they did all this research. And what they learned is that, um, here I've got notes to move around and stuff, but basically what they learned is there are different levels of people along this curve. And on this end, you have the innovators. Um, and there's not very many of those. They're about two and a half percent of the population. And they're always willing to start a new thing. Um, they think new things are great to try. And because they try so many things and sometimes fail at them, most people think they're a little bit crazy. <laughs> The next level are the early adopters, and they're about 13.5% of the population. Um, they look at the innovators and they say, hmm, I think that could work. I'm going to try that. And these people are really the, um, their opinion leaders. These are the people that if you're an extension person, you're really trying to reach these people because they're going to impact these people here. These are the early majority of the adopters about 34% of the population, they look at the early adopters, these opinion leaders who are basically um, very influential in their community. They're gen the early adopters are generally wealthier or well more well-off than other people. And it's because of how they're adopting things. So the early majority look at them and they say, hmm, well, that's interesting, but will it work for me? And they're a little slow to get started on that. Next, we have, um, oops, let's go back one. We have the uh, late majority, um, about 34% of the population. And you can see they're, they're really kind of, uh, I don't know, what are those weirdos up to over there? And, uh, you know, if you're part of the early adopters and the early majority, you've been laughed at a lot by the late majority, who, who are the people in the coffee shop who just think you're a weirdo, you're crazy. How could you do that? Finally, we have the laggards. They're the ones who just do what they've always done. <clears throat> and, you know, from my perspective, those are the people that I'm really not going to influence in my lifetime. So I'm really not going to worry about those people. Who I'm going to worry about are the early adopters and the early majority people. And we'll see the late majority again. Um, I don't think in my lifetime I can probably impact those people, but we'll see. So there you have these people. But this is the problem. There is a chasm between the early adopters and the early majority. And as I kind of talked about already, um, we know that that's um, made up of, let's see, we've got time. Basically, um, when I started looking at it, I realized that people needed about 20 years of data before they were actually going to make a change. So when I was working on cows eating weeds, I basically thought, well, okay, in 2024, a lot of people will have adopted this and they will have forgotten my name and that will be a good thing. And finally, I will pop a cork of on the champagne and I will have a big celebration. Um, <clears throat> so there are, there are parts to this. And basically we have... The innovation itself, you know, how good is it? Um, then we have communication channels, um, time, as I've mentioned, and then we have kind of a social system. The, the people on once the early majority people watching the early adopters, the early adopters helping them along, those kinds of things, okay? 
So <laughs> I wanted to make on pasture a thing that would bridge this chasm. And then we would have these people, the early and late majority people who would say hooray. And then we'd have the other people who, well, this is how they've always done it. And they'll just keep on doing it that way. That's okay. But the chasm is really big. It's not a small thing. And as you can see, it's fraught with danger. There's all these sharks there. And uh, if I'm going to cross it, basically what I'm going to do is I'm going to balance on these sharks as I leap across the chasm. And uh, if I slip up, well, I'll be eaten by sharks. So how do I get from one end to the other? In this case, I want to provide usable information. So I write short articles, no more than about 1,200 words. Um, and I use lots of pictures, lots of illustrations. And I try and break principles down into something that people could actually use. Um, next, I, I like to show peer success. Um, you know, we've, we've had um, Dallas Mount talk about this. We've had um, Tip talk about this. Basically, if other people are doing it, if they're making progress, then other people are more likely to try something. And it's also a good way for me to show kind of the steps involved as well. The next part is, again, to make personal connections. And that is part of this whole social system that makes things possible. Um, and basically, we'll go back to that one. I make personal connections in a variety of ways. One is... Um, with readers reaching out to other readers, they can comment and things like that. Um, I, when readers have questions, I will connect them directly to authors. And then I have personal connections with them as well. When people write to me, I write them back and I try and find answers for them. And so they feel like they have somebody that, you know, they have a resource, a network now that they can reach out to. Um, I have to be credible and trustworthy. Um, I wrote a little bit about that for me myself here just to kind of to, to think about this. But here on Pasture, we're going to talk about what works and what doesn't. And I'm probably going to say some things about people's beliefs that don't, you know, that the science doesn't jive with, with what they think is true. And in order for them to keep on listening to me and not just shut everything down, I have to be credible and I have to be trustworthy. So I have to show them how I arrived at the conclusions that I arrived at. I have to help them understand how science works, why it is that scientists change their minds, why it is that there is controversy over particular topics and about how doing the science one way might get you to arrive at one conclusion or doing it another way would um, get you to arrive at a different conclusion. And so why they argue and how they work that out and why that's important to us. So that's all part of being credible and trustworthy. And there have been occasions when I've said, okay, I made a mistake. I was wrong. This is what I found is right. This is why we keep on going on together. Finally, um, I work really hard at creating a safe zone as a, uh, um, as a, uh, Tip mentioned, you know, this whole, the whole internet can be a place where empathy is lost and people just say whatever they think 
and it can be a real problem. Um, so in the comment section, if somebody writes a comment that isn't constructive, I always write them back and I say, okay, thank you very much for your opinion. I really appreciate it. And on pasture is a place where we try and be kind and where we take care of each other and we're constructive. So if you would like to reframe your, your um, comment, I really welcome that. And if not, well, um, we're not going to post it. So that has made a place where people can, can kind of do this together. No name calling constructive conversations. So that's kind of the deep background. And then this is how I implement it um, in general. We focus on sorting fact from fiction. So you're not going to see me saying, um, yes, you should do a key, um, key line plowing. Or yes, um, spraying raw milk on pasture really makes a difference. You're not going to see that. Um, I make it possible by through the way that the, the search engines work, um, that people can just write a type of question into Google and they will probably come to on pasture because we've got an answer for that. Um, it's really important that science is accessible and usable. And um, I'm a big fan of like HGTV and all of those DIY things. So it's important to me that people get all the steps involved so they can do this. Um, because if they don't have the steps, they're not going to start. Um, it's too intimidating sometimes to figure out the steps on your own. So, you know, that's where I go. And then finally, um, I've basically told people for a long time that they are a community for learning and sharing. And I think that just saying that over and over has been one of the ways to tell, to create this kind of community. How are we doing? Um, right now we have about 110,000 readers a month. They visit about twice a month and they read about three and a half articles each time. Right now we are the most read online resource for graziers. And you can see in that little graph that things have really gone up um, pretty dramatically. Um, we're also, you know, here's who we're reaching our, you know, the, the experience level of the readers is about a third, 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 um, depend, you know, so we have a wide variety of people. Rest or agency staff, consultants, things like that. Um, here you can see what they raise again, mostly beef, most of them in the United States, but we have kind of a worldwide audience as well. Um, are we making a difference? Because I don't want to really do it if I'm not making a difference. So yes, we asked them. 95% think differently or made a change and the rest, well, they already knew it all. And you can kind of see in this graph how they're changing. Um, the green is where they're thinking differently and the, um, which is, you know, an important first step to making a change. And it's also one of the things they talk about at Ranch Management Consultants. One of Stan Parsons' things was it's not about people making money. It's about helping them think differently. Um, and they can, they, you know, they tell us that they're thinking differently and doing different things and reaching out to other people. Um, again, agency staff and consultants are telling us that, that this is working for them. And uh, um, educators have reached out and said they're using on pasture as part of their, um, their coursework. So we know that 
you know, those people are ones that are going to use this information down the road. So hopefully that's helpful. Um, challenges. Um, the biggest challenge, of course, is always funding. I did on pasture for the first four years with no salary at all. And that's not sustainable. So um, in 19 or in 2017, uh, we got our first grant from the uh, Natural Resources Conservation Service. It was a conservation innovation grant. And that basically funded us um, through November of 2019. And uh, since then, um, we're having a little bit of trouble. The grant world has basically changed and I, I just can't live there any longer. So we've converted to a subscription basis um, and subscriptions are beginning to come in. Um, I just did ran the numbers last week and it looks like if things continue on pasture is going to make it, we're going to continue. So um, that was a really nice thing to learn about eight months in about making this switch. Um, but it's been kind of difficult because there's also a pushback. There's this everything online should be free kind of culture. Uh, and that's something that all online media are fighting with right now. So we're going to, we'll be, um, you know, all working on that. Um, one thing I didn't add here, another challenge is just basic fatigue. Um, I write personally um, not including all the authors that participate on Pasture, I write the equivalent of one self-help book every six weeks. Mm. And I have to say, I'm getting tired. <laughs> so, um, you know, that we're, we're eight years in, um, we're getting kind of a solid foundation under us. So I'm trying to figure out a way to bring more people in, um, incorporate a whole lot of other voices. And that's basically where opportunities come in. I really think that partnerships, um, I've kind of been, um, oops, go back. I think something's gone wrong, but basically I've been, I think of this as a, a stone soup. And I've kind of got the fire going. I've filled the pot. I've put in a lot of great ingredients. And now um, I guess what I always say to people is it's taken a lot of hard work to build a platform that reaches 110,000 people a month. And so I think that I should use that for good. So let On Pasture be your voice. If you have things that you need to get out there, if you want people to uh, hear things that, that would help them, please get in touch with me and we can work together on that. Um, we can do advertising. We can You can do sponsorships. Um, there are all kinds of ways that you can reach this audience. You can write articles. If you don't feel comfortable writing articles, you can send me things and I can help you become a good author. I've done that with a whole bunch of people right now um, that contribute to On Pasture on an ongoing basis. So I really invite people at this point to become part of On Pasture. Make this your own because, well, it will be, it'll be helpful for On Pasture. It'll be helpful for you. It'll be helpful for me. Um, one of the things Tip said that really spoke to me was um, conversation is a way you can be, um, 
you develop creativity and you can grow. And I, I could really use some of that right now because after eight years, I'm, I'm tired. So <laughs> please join me. Um, I really appreciate your time and really appreciate the opportunity to talk to you all. Um, there's my phone number. That's my cell number um, and my email. If you call me on the phone and I don't answer, it's because I'm actually a kind of shy person. So please do leave a phone message and then I will look at it and I will say, oh, that person's not scary. I can call you back. So please join me. Um, and any thoughts you have for making this better would be just so appreciated. So thank you. Thank you, Kathy. Um, I think it goes without saying you are making an impact and we appreciate so much what you're doing. I have a question um, from, from Retta online. She says, thank you for great presentation and, and for providing on pasture. I feel a tension that science can be conservative and myopic, but valuable and snake oil can be snake oil, but also maybe valuable in terms of driving discussion and practice forward. How do we navigate this tension? In other words, without alienating the innovation and excitement that can surround new ideas, but partner it with science so people don't lose a ton of money or damage resources? Oh, it's a big question. <laughs> um, I think that what I try and do is when I do run across snake oil, um, I try and just address it up front. And I try, I, I basically go out and find science that explains why this isn't true. And then I try and explain it in a really non-confrontational, these are the, these are facts that I've found. These are people who have tried this thing and have found that it didn't work. And this is why, and, and I, because I've tried really hard to build credibility and trust with the audience, I think um, that helps a lot, but I'm not sure I answered your question. So. No, that was helpful. Okay. I, I think now I want to bring all three of our panelists uh, up on the screen. I think uh, it's just been an exceptional presentation today to have all three of you here has been quite an opportunity for us. I'm, I'm so grateful for that. Um, to get things going, I guess Ben Berlinger asked a great question. Any one of you can jump in here. In your opinion, what are the biggest challenges to effective conversations? How do you recommend overcoming these challenges? Great question from Ben. Tip, go first. Yeah, go ahead, Tip. I've really been surprised being somewhat of a shy person myself that in interviewing some of these, you know, what I consider to be superstars in the range world, they're really nervous about being on air, so to speak, uh, when they wouldn't be nervous standing in front of, you know, a group of 300 people and talking about range science. And uh, one of the things that, that I feel like I have to overcome in trying to get good conversation is being willing to uh, admit what I don't know. You know, as the host, you're sort of, maybe maybe the expectation is mine, but I have the expectation that I'm at least half an expert on what I'm interviewing somebody about. Uh, and sometimes that's the case, and but oftentimes it's not. And so I think in any conversation, you know, the question was, what are the biggest challenges to effective conversation? I think one of them is being willing to, um, you know, reveal your own ignorance of a topic. You know, ignorance even has a bad connotation, but uh, it just means you don't know something that somebody else does know. And uh, I, I think the other thing that I've found just in general adult 
conversation and friendships is that we tend to assume that everybody else already has their social circle full and that you're not really welcome. Uh, and as at this point, you know, a 43 year old man, I've discovered that that's almost never the case, uh, that most people are pretty open to being uh, new friends, so to speak, and open to having conversations about uh, stuff that they don't know and what you don't know. But it requires both sides to be willing to um, press into what you don't know and being willing to expose that, I guess. Clay, you want to expand on those challenges a little bit? I know we all deal with them. What, yeah, what are your challenges? I think, I think just, you know, kind of reiterating what Tip said in his presentation about the invasion of technology into our relationships and, uh, you know, all of the all of the collateral damage that goes along with that from uh, damaging our ability to empathize to uh, distracting us from actually hearing what the person has said. You know, I think maybe the most cliche answer, and since I'm a pastor, I'll give the most cliche answer, is that we should listen to hear what people are saying, not listen to respond or not think about what we're going to say next uh, to them as as a result of what they've said to us. Okay, yeah, I'm going to... I have a <laughs> perhaps an even stranger answer. Um, love. Mm. When I get one of those comments from somebody um, who's going to kill my conversation by saying something really rude, my first response is not pleasant, not even I can't say what I would say. Um, and then the next response is, is now I will love this person because something's gone wrong and I'm going to love this person and I'm going to say it. And that's basically, this is really going to sound dumb, but with every article I write, there's love because I'm trying to help people. And so I have this picture in my mind of them as just, who they would be if they had everything, all the information, all that stuff they needed. And so I'm writing it with love. And, and that's just all the underlying stuff. And I know that that's a really weird answer for the Society for Range Management, but there you go. That's how it works for me. <laughs> I think it's actually some wonderful insight, Kathy. Mm -hmm. uh, matter of fact, I think that's the perfect thing I'm going to wrap on today. That uh, is a great way to end this session. I uh, can't thank you enough for joining us today. So valuable for the membership. Um, I do want to thank everybody from SRM that's put on this conference this, this last two weeks. I think for having to pivot and go online, I think it's just been a phenomenal product that they've come up with. Uh, we thank you all for participating. Thanks again for tuning in today and really appreciate all the feedback and support and uh, been been a good three years. Looking forward to many more and uh, future growth for the Working Cows podcast. Again, next week, look forward to that episode with Tip Hudson and Kathy both, uh, kind of more uh, along the lines of the format you're used to here at the Working Cows podcast, just a, a straight up interview with the two of them and the three of us interacting and, and exchanging ideas and thoughts and lessons that we've learned through the process of building these online communities. So look forward to that next week on the Working Cows podcast. We invite you to visit workingcows.net to subscribe to the show via iTunes or Stitcher. 
You'll also find detailed show notes pages, resources from our guests, and the industry leaders who have influenced them. For more ideas on putting your cows to work for you in a more profitable way, tune in next week.